This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication, which is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Steve Miner. He's a professor and the director of the Contemporary History Institute at Ohio University. He's an international expert and specialist in recent Russia, Soviet, and Eastern European history. He also is an award-winning author and just completed writing a book called The Furies Unleashed, The Soviet People at War, 1941-1945. to We talk about the current state of Russia and its leader, Vladimir Putin, and the impact Russia has had on the American electoral process. Help us out a little bit, Dr. Miner, before we get into the the current events. I'm not sure that we as Americans understand the Russian system uh, very well right now. We hear terms thrown around like oligarchs and, and... what role they have, how do they <laughs> become oligarchs. Uh, uh, we, I think, understand that most of the Russian power is centered in Vladimir Putin and his cronies, but I think that's about all we know. So can you sort of break it down a little bit for us in understandable terms? I can try. The plain truth is that really nobody knows what goes on within the Kremlin. It's, we've returned to a period of uh, opacity like uh, under the old Soviet regime. After the Soviet regime collapsed, uh, it was succeeded by a period of enormous chaos uh, under Boris Yeltsin. And uh, basically, the, the, the riches of the country were looted by a number of people who you refer to as the oligarchs, people who, like Berezovsky and so forth, who, who enriched themselves by grabbing the assets of the state, oil, mostly commodities, because that was what the Soviet Union was rich in. And they became enormously powerful, uh, and corruption was rampant, and organized crime, uh, non-state organized crime was rampant under Yeltsin. And as it became clear that Yeltsin was fading and ultimately going to die, uh, some of these oligarchs uh, gathered together, Berezovsky and others, to select somebody that they thought would protect their interests, and they chose Vladimir Putin. Putin repaid them by looting their assets, essentially, and taking the money back from these oligarchs who'd enriched themselves and distributing them to his own people, and particularly to people who had come up through the old intelligence and secret police apparatus, the KGB. Uh, these people were in Russian are called the Siloviki. They're, they're the power brokers, mm-hmm. if you will. And their names aren't entirely known. No. Uh, uh, that many of them are personal cronies of, of Putin, people who practice judo with him and very, various other things. But he's re-centralized power within the Kremlin, taken it away from these, these sort of freebooters. It's not any less corrupt. It's just state st- state-centered corruption rather than, if, if you will, free market uh, Wild West. So uh, he's, he's concentrated not only economic power in the hands of the Kremlin and people who are reliable to him, 
But he's whittled away at regional power. He has made governors more dependent on his authority. And particularly, he's, he's quashed the, the radio and television broadcasting, uh, all of which is, almost all of which now is under state control. Interestingly enough, the internet isn't. And so there are still ways that Russians can receive unfiltered outside news. And of course, radio broadcasts from the outside are no longer jammed as they were under the Soviet Union. So it's a complex situation. It's not the old Soviet Union. The controls aren't as complete, but he's gradually re-centralizing it and squashing independent voices. One of the things that I pick up is that he has done uh, a tremendous job from his perspective in um, reigniting uh, patriotism and uh, fervor. Russian fervor, I guess, would be uh, the 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 right word. Is is, is that perception accurate? I think it is. I, uh, what the Russian people think is very hard to determine with any accuracy. It's often said that Putin is wildly popular, eighty percent or whatever. Uh, there are no independent uh, polling firms now, so we don't really know. We don't also don't know how deep that goes. Russian patriotism is real, though, and it is a reaction in part not only to uh, – most countries have a certain element of patriotism and nationalism, but there's been a humiliation that the Russians underwent after the collapse of the Soviet Union. They lost a good portion of their territory. Uh, they lost half their population. About 25 million ethnic Russians were stranded in what's called the near abroad in, in countries that are, are now independent of Russian control. And the West – was humiliating Russia. It was, it, it was no longer listened to. One thing that I, I complain about, actually, as a Russian expert, is we only become interested in Russia when it becomes a problem. Right. It's been a very right. interesting place for t the past 20 years, but few people would be interested in an interview with me uh, because it was their problem, not ours. Now we're interested in it again because it's, it's enmeshed in our current politics. They, they saw this and they were offended by it, that, that Russians Russians' voices weren't heard in international councils. It used to be, of course, that when the Soviet Union existed, it was the other superpower and it was listened to. And if there was a problem in the world, they had a voice. You get uh, a decline to the point where Obama referred to Russia as a regional power and didn't produce anything the world wanted. He actually said these things. These things wound. And mm -hmm. so there's, there's been a, a snapback, a reaction, if you will, to the humiliations of, of the previous 20 years and the fact that their voices are ignored. Does that apply to China <coughs> as well? Did they see China as a, as a competitor or uh, in the, on the world stage? Certainly, China is becoming more and more of a player economically and with development, certainly in Africa and other places. Putin sees China as a possible partner to um, upset the uh, unipolar dominance of the United States. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy to do because uh, there's no warmth amongst the Russian people for the Chinese. There's been a long sort of racial uh, tension there. Also, the fact is that you know China is this teeming country filled with people and activity and riches right next to Siberia, which is empty and kind of desolate and, and where economic development is, is minimal. There's a fear, in other words, that the Chinese might make hay with these developments. There's also a rivalry between the two powers over the Central Asian countries like Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan. So it's not a natural fit. And there is some tension there. But, but Putin has tried to come, come uh, to form a block that's sort of an anti-American block to counter American power. And uh, you know, he met with uh, Xi, uh, Xi just about two weeks ago. And he, he made, he's making a, a, a play to work with the Chinese to 
upset the American apple cart, if you will. And they, they do have interests in common, particularly in the Middle East. The American focus of, of Putin, um, is that personal with him? Mm-hmm. And therefore, he's uh, uh, inflamed national fervor around it? Or, or is it nationalistic and, and he's just exacerbating it? How, how does that work? What Putin himself actually believes is a big question mark. Um, my own view is that Putin is one of the world's ultimate cynics. Um, this is a man who rose in a, a very cynical system, the old KGB, right. which was not only irreligious but atheist. Well, he's rediscovered the Russian Orthodox Church. Does he believe it or is it useful? You know, it's, it's your call. It's, it's in essence a part of the state though. Yes. I heard the head of the Russian Orthodox Church saying that – there is no separation between church and state. Is that correct? Yeah, that's very correct. Yeah, okay. the, 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 it is very much the Russian Orthodox Church. Right. And of course, it grows out of the old Byzantine root where there was supposed to be symphony between church and state. But remember, Putin came from a regime that bitterly uh, persecuted all Christianity, including the Russian Orthodox Church. Much of the hierarchy, though, was working for the KGB, we now know, because the documents have been made available. So there is, a, there is a sort of institutional cooperation. My point was, does Putin really believe in Christianity or does he see it as a useful tool? Does he really believe in, in Russian nationalism? I suppose he does to some extent. Or, but does he see it more as a tool for governance? Uh, I think he's a cynic, like I said. That doesn't mean that Russian nationalism isn't a force. It, it definitely is. And patriotism and pride in Russian uh, literary and intellectual achievements. Uh, if you remember the Sochi Olympics, yes, the opening scenes were all about Russian writers, right? Uh, Tolstoy and Chekhov and Dostoevsky, all of whom, by the way, had been persecuted by the Russian state. <laughs> Many of whom had been shot by the Soviet state that that Putin served, but nonetheless, they're part of Russia's legacy, and and certainly he is playing on that legacy and trying to fan the flames of Russian pride and Russian anti-Americanism. M- many of which go together. I'm a, a son of the Cold War, raised in the 50s and 60s, and, and remember the Cold War back in the Eisenhower days right. even vaguely. But, but certainly the Cold War as, as it emerged, how is this different? Hmm. Or is it similar to that? It feels different, but, but I'm looking at from just a layman's standpoint. Right. Um, when the Soviet Union collapsed for a very brief time, archives were opened, and then some of them were shut, particularly foreign policy archives. And when somebody asked one of the archivists, well, why are you shutting these, these foreign policy archives? He said, well, geography doesn't change. And there's, there's continuity in some elements. Russia still has certain aims that are dictated by geography and by history. This isn't the Cold War Part Two, though, you know, although people have referred to it as that. Russia is, has a GDP slightly larger than that of Spain. It has a population only about 20 million larger than Japan. It occupies an enormous swath of the Earth's surface, one-sixth of the Earth's land mass, and has enormous resources and a very well-educated population, but it's poor. And its military is, is uh, decrepit, except for some very important and very significant uh, elite units. Its navy is a wreck. Uh, I don't know if you followed the Admiral Kuznetsov, their one supposed aircraft carrier as it sailed through the channel, belching black smoke. 
only wow. to arrive off of Syria and lose half of its complementary fighter planes to, owing to crashes. Right. Uh, so it, it's got technical problems and it's got, it's got uh, military problems also. And most importantly, it doesn't have the allies it had during the Cold War. It doesn't have the Warsaw Pact. It's no longer occupying Germany. It no longer occupies Poland. And, and very significantly, it no, no longer occupies Ukraine. Uh, Russia became a great power in Europe when Catherine the Great seized Ukraine. And Ukraine exists as a buffer between Russia and, and the center of Europe. It's not the threat it once was. Doesn't mean it's not a threat, doesn't mean that it's not unstable, but it's not, this is not the Cold War. It doesn't have the power to project power abroad in the way it used to. If I still want to be a player in the world and I still want to be perceived as a power, it seems like this turn to cyber attacks would be a way that I could perpetuate that power or or even grow that power. Am I following a train of thought? Yes, you are. In fact, the, the Russian military doctrine has been published, and it, it talks about uh, more than just you know, tanks versus tanks. Uh, it also talks about full-scale warfare, including cyber warfare. The Russians are very good at it. Uh, they spend a lot of money on it. They have excellent technicians. Uh, their mathematicians and their computer experts are first rate. Uh, the Russians are very good at this, and they've, they've launched attacks on the Baltic states. They've launched attacks on Ukraine several times. In, in fact, they, they messed with what remains of the Chernobyl reactors, which, by the way, are still operating even after, wow. even after the accidents. But they've done other things as well. There, there's an assassination campaign against uh, rivals and enemies. There have been two car bombs in, in Kiev that have hit intelligence figures from the Ukrainian services. There have been targeted assassinations. A Russian legislator who was a critic of Putin and fled to Kiev ended up murdered in the street. There have been assassinations in London, about 18, one of which, the Litvinenko murder, is clearly traceable back to the Kremlin. I mean, who, who owns polonium other than a state? <laughs> yeah, right. uh, and, and not only that, but they traced its trail in the aircraft going to and from Moscow. So it's pretty clear that this was a state-ordered hit and meant to be seen as one. Because you can kill people in any number of ways, but if you do it with polonium, you want, you're sending a message. You're saying, we got you, and it was the state that did it. And there have been a number of these unsolved uh, murders. Uh, so there's that. There's also playing on the near abroad, this, this diaspora of Russians that I, I mentioned before, uh, many of whom feel as second-rate citizens in, in their newfound homelands in Estonia. Estonia is just under half Russian. And uh, Putin is playing on these, these folks, aggravating their discontents, playing them up, broadcasting to them, playing on grievances. And, of course, he's doing it in eastern Ukraine as well, where there's a substantial Russian population. So it's, it, it, cyber warfare has to be seen as one element in something that is no longer easily defined as war, but full-on conflict using all sorts of means that you can that come short of actually facing down the West in a confrontation because the Russians would have no chance of winning that. Nuclear weapons and their poor economy prevent that. But confrontation, they can, they can do pretty well at. And, and Putin has played what is objectively a very weak hand quite strongly because he's willing to go one step further than the rich Europeans or the United States are willing to go. And it seems to be, uh, Dr. Minor, from, from, again, a lay point of view, it seems to be layered. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I mean by that is that we get reports that uh, uh, Russian uh, cyber attacks have have uh, uh, crippled the uh, power systems and the infrastructure of the Ukraine. Uh, 
But the next step from that is this is just practice for a larger attack uh, on the United States. It seems whatever is done at, at one level then is layered and, and extrapolated to, to a much uh, bigger picture. Part of that probably is fact. Part of that is probably uh, publicity <laughs> in, in, in the sense of, of, of that that might be possible. But this sort of cyber terrorism, if that's another term that we could use, seems to be taking its toll. Yeah, the, the, I, I don't see Putin as wanting to take on the United States directly. I, I think it would be madness, and I don't think he's mad. I, I, I don't think he's a, a very likable guy, but uh, he's not mad. He does see us as a rival. He does see uh, his, his methods as a way of keeping us off balance and preventing us from consolidating what is still very impressive and worldwide American power. There's no way he can confront the American fleet or, or the American army directly in combat or the American Air Force. But you can chip away at the edges. And you, th this is evident in the Black Sea and in the Baltic in particular, where the, he's made a number of military moves that don't get a whole lot of notice. But he's heavily armed Crimea. He's moved nuclear weapons into it. He's hardened sites so that they're, they're impervious to uh, air attack. Uh, he's made a number of moves around the Baltic, fortifying islands and moving in high-tech uh, anti-aircraft defenses that isolate three NATO members, the Baltic states. He has done – his moves are so apparent that he's scared the wits out of the Swedes and the Finns who have now joined a rapid reaction force with Britain. Uh, you know, who thought that the Swedes would, would do this? Right. Uh, so if you're scared – and they've also reinstituted the draft. Uh, so the, the, the Baltic countries and the Scandinavian countries are really quite scared about this. This is not going to be an invasion of New York. Uh, I don't think Putin is concerned about it. There's no evidence that, he's, he's, that that's what he's about. He is about reasserting Russian power over what was the former geopolitical space of the Soviet Union. And that includes the Baltic states. That includes Ukraine. And he is right now, he just announced his intention to carry out a joint uh, military exercise, very large one, with the Belarusians. So he is, he's, he's rattling his saber. And he's certainly uh, chipping away at Ukrainian authority. He's not Superman, though, by, by the way. Uh, right. Some of this is blowing up in his face. Uh, Ukraine is a real problem, which I'd, I'd be happy to talk about. Yeah. Later uh, I want to get to that, but but – his fixation on NATO, mm -hmm. is this part of the, what you've just described or is that something different? You know, the, the, the Russians talk a lot about how uh, they were provoked by the expansion of NATO eastwards. and To include to in members from the old Soviet right, Union. Right, right. Uh, the, the Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, but also what had been subject countries like uh, Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, and, and Slovakia, Romania, and, and Bulgaria even. They're not really worried about NATO, and, and uh, Putin tipped his hand on this because he, he made a remark once, which, I, which got underreported, that the more NATO expands, the less power it actually wields because it, it requires universal consent, unanimous consent, before it, does, it takes any offensive action or any military action. And you can always bribe at least one state and, you know, the, to, to, to join the Romanians and the Bulgarians, both of whom have long ties with Russia, particularly the Bulgarians. Um, 
it actually weakens NATO rather than strengthen, strengthening it. Now, the future lasts a long time and an alliance that is in large part designed to keep Russia out of, out of Central Europe could over time morph into a greater threat. And, and you know, the Russians think long term as military planners tend to do. But they aren't scared about NATO in the immediate term. It's a good, useful uh, a stick to use against their rivals. And, and I, I, I don't think that is the concern. What is the concern? is uh, the creeping towards the Russian border of prosperous countries that are integrated into Europe and are democratic. Because if a place like Ukraine can be prosperous, democratic, free, and associated with Europe, why can't Russia? And who needs Putin? Uh, so an oligarch and, and, and a dictator, as Putin is, uh, requires a sense of crisis in order to, to maintain his power. Why do you need a dictator if self-governance works? Uh, and, so and he's been worried about the so-called color revolutions in Ukraine. And and, 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 and the Ukraine uh, has long been a, <laughs> a point of irritation uh, for, for Russia and for, for Putin. But it also puts the United States in, a, in an awkward place. It does. Uh, explain that just a bit. Well, Ukraine uh, came fairly late to Russia. It came at the end of the 18th century. And uh, ethnically, it's, on, it's Russian in the east, but the further west you go, the more Ukrainian it becomes and the more nationalist, Ukrainian nationalist it becomes, and the more integrated with the west. Parts of Ukraine were never part of the Russian Empire un, un, until, the Soviet, until Stalin took them at the end of the Second World War. Um, so it, it has a very separate identity, and it looks westward rather than eastward, and it sees particularly Russian, uh, Ukrainian nationalists see Russia as a real threat. Putin's strong-arm tactics have actually reinforced that. Uh, I was just reading today that uh, whereas when the Soviet Union collapsed, about 75% of Ukrainians wanted a Ukrainian state separate from Russia. It's now in the 90s. So uh, they, they resent what Putin is doing. Putin has openly said that he doesn't even think Ukraine's a state. He calls it Little Russia, which was actually a term that was used by Russian imperialists in the 19th century. Or New Russia is another term that he called, which is a term from Catherine the Great. But it's also a diminutive term. <laughs> it is. Yes, it is. Well, I mean, the, the term itself, Ukraine, means on the border. And Ukraine has rarely in, in modern times had its own independence. It's either been part of Austria or Turkey or Russia or right. Poland or Germany. Uh, so it's always been a borderland. And Putin sees it as a borderland that should, by rights, in his view at least, belong to Russia. And he doesn't see it. He, he, he told Obama in a meeting, this is not a state. This is not a country. Uh, and, and he is working patiently, but uh, somewhat counterproductively to incorporate it into, into Russia. But it's quite costly what he's doing. And, you know, I, I had a, a discussion with, with, with somebody who, who said that Putin was really very clever and really very adept. And I said, really? This is a guy who lived through the collapse of one system because it overextended itself, it spent more money than it had, and it neglected its economy. And what is he doing? Same thing, sounds yeah. like. He's stuck in, in what could ultimately be quite a, a losing pattern. Um, he, he cannot take the West on directly. He's not going to, I don't think. Uh, he can chip away at it and he can be difficult. But doing that it imposes a cost. He, he's, he's got sanctions on him. He's, he, he's got an economy that is in very, very poor shape. We'll be back after this message. 
The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders. These leaders will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research on communication concepts, issues, and problems. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provides benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Chipping away and being difficult, though, uh, leads us back to the election meddling mm-hmm. uh, in, in the United States. Which ours or theirs, by the way? <laughs> ours okay. at this point. <laughs> uh, but, but the idea that uh, if I can – if I can, I can't confront things straight up, mm-hmm. but if I can meddle, if I can get a little bit of an advantage, <clears throat> I can eliminate somebody I really don't want in there, which is Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. So, so uh, let me play with this a little bit and see what I can do to, to, to get over here. It's, it's almost puppeteer-like <laughs> in, 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 in a sense. Uh, but would I be correct that this is not a new thing? I think many of us think, oh, well, this was just in the 2016 uh, election and, and it, it was all for Donald Trump, period. This has been an ongoing course of conduct, has it not? Yes, it has. Um, the, the Russians have tried to influence our elections before, most notably in 1948 when they backed the candidacy of Henry Wallace who later on basically apologized for having been uh, associated with people who were being funded and run by the Russians. So it goes back that far, at least. Uh, and they've been involved in, in other attempts to, to color our elections. Um, this one is, is, is peculiar in, in so many ways. But certainly, uh, Trump had an animus against Hillary Clinton because the Americans backed demonstrations against Putin back in 2012. And if you're Putin, uh, his one concern that I think we can all agree on is he wants to maintain power. And dictatorships can be quite powerful, but they can also be quite brittle. And you can point to any number of cases in recent history where uh, dictatorships that looked like they were going to be everlasting suddenly vanished into thin air. And when we backed the forces on the streets, and he's a pretty uh, well-informed spy, Right. And I'm sure he has his reasons for knowing that we were involved in, in backing the people on the street. Uh, he campaigned against Hillary Clinton. You wouldn't believe that this is well before she ran for president. Uh, he, he was vituperative against her on a personal level. 
so I'm not sure that the, the Russians see things in terms of Democrat or Republican or conservative or liberal, but they certainly didn't like Hillary Clinton. And they didn't because they, they understood that for all of the talk about cooperation with Russia and drawing it into a, a cooperative pattern, when push came to shove, we would not back Putin. We would back the, the street. And uh, he knows that. And, and so this is, his, this is his payback, if you will, or his attempt to sow trouble in our backyard. And it has to be seen of a piece with what he's do- done in, in Europe as well, where he backed Marine Le Pen and in the recent uh, elections. He probably was uh, funneling money for the Brexit campaign. Uh, he certainly is involved in cyber attacks in Poland and in Germany in, in their upcoming elections. So we're not unique in, in, in being on the, the receiving end of this. But there really was an animus, I think, against Hillary Clinton, which you can trace back to 2012. And I think that's important for people to understand. It, it was perhaps more animus for Hillary Clinton than it was affinity for right. Donald Trump, although Donald Trump probably brought to Putin some characteristics that Putin liked, uh, the, the ability to be manipulated perhaps uh, uh, a bit more than, than Secretary Clinton. It, it was sort of a, a perfect storm mm. uh, if you're Vladimir Putin, was it not? Well, I'm, I'm a historian and, and uh, you know, I love reading documents and, and finding out what really happened behind the scenes. And of course, we have no idea what really is going on in Russia, but I would love to read uh, their 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 considerations about our election because if they predicted Trump's victory, then they were awfully good because virtually nobody else did. Uh, our press didn't get it. Our polar, uh, pollsters didn't get it. Um, my sense is they were making trouble rather than thinking that they can actually succeed in enthroning Hillary Clinton. And there's still no evidence really that they no, actually no. did very much. No. Uh, but they certainly backed, they, they may have been behind the DNC leak and, and a few other things. Uh, whether that changed the vote sufficiently to affect the election, I, I don't know. But they, they, I think rather than campaign for Donald Trump or for any particular person in Western Europe, what they're trying to do is discredit the system to throw mud, to say, behind the scenes, it's all a fraud. You, uh, you guys claim that you're democratic, but in fact, you're hypocrites. Uh, it's it's sordid. It's, it's interest group politics. It's, it's rigged. It's rigged, <laughs> exactly. And if you can plant that seed in the mind of enough people, then Putin looks less illegitimate than he is. Well, it's going to be interesting uh, with the special – Council with the the Senate and House uh, oh, yeah. investigations going in fits and starts, but more broadly than than that, Dr. Minor, what should we as interested uh, Americans be looking at in the next six months, year, couple of years, uh, sort of geopolitically and where? Putin fits in and Russia fits in. Are, are there any tells that we ought to be looking for? Yes, I, I think there are. Um, I, mean, I don't predict the future. I'm a historian. His, uh, although they always say that in Russia, the most dangerous profession is being a historian because the past always changes. That's but, right. <laughs> but um, yeah, there are certain things we can look for. Um, there are, of course, and have been demonstrations in the street. Uh, this Alexander Navalny has, has organized them, and, and you've had tens of thousands of people show up. In a police state, that's significant. 
Uh, do these grow? Do these expand? Do they take root? Um, that, that's something to look at. Another thing to look at is the economy because Putin has ridden high because for a long time oil prices were high. Russia is an oil and gas country. It, it gets about 75% of the state revenue out of oil and gas. Well, oil and gas used to be, or oil used to be $150 a barrel. It's 40 something now. Uh, so they've had to be uh, been burned through their cash. And of course, they've had sanctions. So um, the bloom is going to be off the rose for Mr. Putin in terms of producing the goods for the average Russian. The Economist says that they're turning the corner and that maybe their recession is over. But I think they declined by about 15 percent. Right. That's, that's a huge decline it is. for a state. I mean, we didn't even decline 1 percent during the, the Great Recession, and yet we all felt the pain. Uh, so 15 percent is, is substantial. Uh, so the economy is another thing you'd look at. Um, I think also any sign of unrest at the top of people who you might get defectors or people willing to testify about the, shena- the financial shenanigans that are going on. I also think Syria is a quagmire. I, I, you know, the, the, people say that uh, Putin was brilliant for going in there and rescuing Assad. Okay, he's, he's there. Let's see him get out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what's his winning plan for the place? Uh, overextension is a very real problem for Russia. Russia has a hard time, as I said, extending power abroad. It's expensive. They don't have the infrastructure to do this sort of thing. That's, that's an interesting thing to watch. Can they extricate themselves out of Syria, having rescued Assad? What is their game plan? They don't have a very clear one right now. Another thing to look at is Ukraine, which seems to be trending right now against Russia, although the Russians are ratcheting up the violence. It doesn't look like it's, it's working because the, the Russians have separated this portion of eastern Ukraine. And it's, in some ways, the worst basket case. It's, 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 it's Rust Belt times 10. And so now they have an area which is somewhat dependent on them. They have refugees that are in Russia, about 600,000 refugees. This is imposing a strain on an economy that's already rather weak for a number of other mm-hmm. reasons. So Ukraine is something to look at. The Ukrainians announced their intention to uh, uh, embark on the road to joining NATO uh, just a couple weeks ago. Now, that's... A long way away. They're not a. They're not a democracy. Their their military can't be integrated. But with that NATO. intent has but to be salt in the wound. It does indeed. And to the extent that countries like Ukraine, but also Georgia, and former satellites like Bulgaria, to the extent that they become more enmeshed rather than less so in the West, that's another thing to watch. Um, you know, a lot of these people have their finger in the air and say, you know, who's who's the strong horse? Who do I go with? And if if they're trending west then they're sensing something that may be invisible to us about what's going on in Russia. So those would be the things I would look at. Um, I'd also look at military expenditure. Uh, Putin has said he intends to rebuild the Russian Navy and rearm the, the army. I'm not sure he can do it. I'm not sure he has the funds to do it. Uh, they've produced a new battle tank, and, and uh, they've announced the, 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 burn, the building of new submarines. But apparently those have been stalled. And that would be something interesting to watch, too. Can he do what he wants to do? Is, is the money there? Is the res- are the resources there to do what he wants to do? So those would be some things I would, I would think of as indicators for the future. Dictators tend to act, end rather poorly. I mean, Stalin died in bed, but most dictators get murdered. And there's always that possibility uh, that Putin could be bumped off by people who see him as an albatross around their neck. Well, I appreciate you coming in and bringing this up to date, and I hope that we can come back to you as as things evolve. Uh, 
uh, all things Russia, it seems, <laughs> and 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 you certainly are an expert. You've got a new book coming out, yes, uh, and you've uh, looked at Russia's involvement in World War II. Yes, um, there is, there was until this book was written, really no comprehensive history of the Soviet Union during Second World War. There, there, uh, there was a book written in 1962 that was was an attempt to do it, but of course there were no records available. Of course, time. most books on the Eastern Front have been. Battle books, histories of the of the military campaigns. Uh, there was a lot more going on in World War II than the campaigns or even diplomacy. I, I talk about the people, about the economy, about the gulag, about lend-lease and its effects on the diplomacy of the war, on deportations of nationalities, on the terror system, and the army and the military. So I try to bring it all together in one one rather large volume. It's it was three hundred ninety-two thousand words. So that's that's wow. a rather big well, book. Well, when it's when by it the way, comes the name out. is the the Furies Unleashed the Soviet People at War. Is 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 the title of the book. And when it comes out, and when it's ready to be published, we'll have you back. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Today we've been talking with author and professor Dr. Stephen Miner, the director of the Contemporary History Institute at Ohio University. We've been talking about the current status of Russia, its leader, Vladimir Putin, and the Russian impact on the American presidential election. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through Apple Podcasts. If you have questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.